Welcome to the podcast of Walking in the Promises. Walking in the Promises is a ministry of God's grace expressed through the unfolding of his word. The following message is by our founder, Marcelo Tolopilo. Heavenly Father, we do come before you with humble hearts, understanding, Lord, that without your spirit, without your grace, Lord, we are unable to hear truth even. Lord, I pray that you would teach us. Lord, we need to hear from you, not from me, but from your word. Uh, we need to have the truth, simple truth, set our hearts afire, and um, Lord, make to make us true worshipers of who you are and who your son is and who your spirit is, Lord. We just uh, commend ourselves to you and ask for your uh, ministering hand and spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, we're going to, or as was said, we're going to look at um, a couple of verses from First Peter. We're actually going to look at verses 1 through 6, but not all of it today. We're going to get verse 1 today and the first part of verse 2. And then next week is Easter. And uh, after the week after that, the week after Easter, we'll, we'll finish up with this First Peter message. Uh, I'm only going to make two points, one this week and the other in two weeks from now. But the point today is simply this. Peter is, first of all, preaching to people, writing to people who are suffering for their faith. Things really, and we'll look at that in terms of background in just a minute. And he wants to comfort them, to help them persevere through their trials, through their difficulties. And his first point is simply this. He says, in essence, I'm summarizing, but we live, we exist, we suffer within the sphere of God's sovereign grace. In other words, we're not left to, to twist in the wind by God in you know, the, the winds of fate. We are living, we exist, we, we ex- are suffering within the context of God's sovereign grace. And like I said, this was written to a group of people who were really beginning to suffer. And I, I, my secret wish is for some of you, whomever the Lord moves, to study this book on your own because some of you are going through trials, heavy temptations. Uh, others of you know relatives and friends who are going through a rough time and people who are Christians. I hope that this background helps you be drawn to the book of First Peter so that you can study it for yourselves. But we need to know a little bit about the groundwork so that we can understand what the book is talking about. And as you may know, this letter is called a general epistle. And the reason that's called it's called a general epistle is because Peter wasn't writing to any specific church, like Paul would write to the church of the Thessalonians or to the church at Colossae. He's writing to the church in general, the churches that were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. In fact, he tells us what his target audience is in verse 1. He says, To those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, all over what used to be Asia Minor in Europe, Western Europe, Eastern Europe, Western Europe, And what prompted Peter's letter to the church abroad was that it was the increasing reality of God's people that they were beginning to suffer severely for their faith. In fact, this book was written between 64 and 65, somewhere around there, A.D. 
And the flame of persecution that had started uh, became a, a roaring furnace, if you will, a persecution that lasted in the church, not for a year, not for two, not for a few months, but for many, many years. In 64 AD, and we'll talk about it in a minute, but uh, that roaring furnace began to consume literally thousands of thousands of Christian lives. Um, you have to remember, how many of you remember Nero, you know, from your middle school or high school, you know, history, Roman history? Nero started the thing in 64 AD. But this particular wave of persecution didn't find its culmination, and it didn't even end there, but its major culmination, until the reign of Diocletian into the 4th century. So we're talking early 4th century, but we're talking about 250 years, roughly, of persecution. Terrible persecution of Christians. And uh, just to give you a little perspective, it would be the length of the life of our country, the United States of America. Can you imagine a persecution that started with George Washington and didn't end until today? Interestingly, and this is just a side point, the church during that time actually grew. Amazingly. In fact, by the time of Diocletian, the church was somewhere around 6 million people. That was 10% of the empire's population. But nearly two and a half centuries of persecution, and it began about the time that this epistle was written. So this was a very timely, very important letter to the church because they were beginning to feel the fury of hell itself gathering against the church. It was a, a grisly pogrom of apocalyptic proportions. And Christians who were despised and marginalized already, more so than the Jews, were about to, <clears throat> excuse me, to receive uh, the most amazing and deprived persecutions that these fallen minds could come up with. And the man leading the, the charge, the creative cruelties, was the madman Nero. Now, what happened? What, what, what set things off? What did Nero do? What is he famous for? He burned Rome, right? And the, the old adage is that he fiddled while Rome burned. Um, but he wanted to clear old Rome because he had a, this, this thirst, this lust for architectural projects. And he wanted to build an enduring name for himself. And he wanted uh, just a, a, a twisted playground for his own pleasure, if you will. And so he surreptitiously began to burn Rome down. And then when he got wind, and when he observed that the people were beginning to suspect him of being the arsonist, he quickly shifted the blame to a group that was already despised. Who are they? The Christians. Christians were already viewed with suspicion and with some derision because they were anti-imperial cult people. The, the Romans worshipped Caesar. And they also worshipped a whole pantheon of, of Greek gods that were very popular with the masses. Christians were singularly devoted to the God of the Bible and Jesus Christ, his son. In fact, what's really interesting is that Rome was very tolerant of many, many gods, many, many religions. But when it came to Christianity, they could not swallow, fathom, or accept the fact that they were singularly devoted to one God. 
Christians repeated the words of Jesus in John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. What? No one comes to the Father, but how? Through me. They couldn't stand that exclusivity, and that's exactly what bugs people today about Christianity, right? It's okay to believe in anything, but Christianity is exclusive, and that's bigoted and closed-minded. But after Nero torched the capital, the people of Rome became increasingly agitated. They had lost, of course, a great section of their great and proud, proud city, and with the city, their homes, their property. And they were also very disturbed because in that great fire conflagration, they had lost thousands and thousands and thousands of their idols that had filled their buildings, that had filled their houses, that had filled their baths, etc., and so if you're a pagan and you lose everything and your God is being trampled underfoot, uh, you're not going to be in a good mood. And the people in angry consternation began to look for a scapegoat. And of course, Nero, to save his own hide, as we said, was only too happy to point out the Christians as a source of Roman suffering. And so a persecution that would last nearly two and a half centuries or more, really, began with a Roman bloodbath of almost unimaginable human conscience. Philip Chaff, the Christian historian, says that there were basically three accusations leveled against the Christians. One was incendiarism, or because they were seditionists, they were viewed as seditionists against the cult of emperor worship, they, they were told that because of that, in their hatred for that cult, they burned the city down. They were also accused of misanthropy or hatred of mankind and of unnatural vice, which rumors all over the place persisted that Christians sacrificed children, that they practiced cannibalism, that they drank blood, which is, of course, a complete misunderstanding, appropriation of what? The Lord's Supper. And so because of those accusations and because of other prejudices, Schaff says, quote, there began a carnival of blood such as even heathen Rome never saw before or since, unquote. And so believers in Jesus were killed in manifold and in particularly cruel ways. And the most popular, if I can use that word, if it even fits here, but method of execution was, as you guessed it probably, crucifixion. Many, many Christians were crucified publicly in a horror spectacle of torture. And crucifixion is a terrible way to go, guys. I don't know if Eric's going to talk about it next week a little bit, but crucifixion is a, where a person basically dies from asphyxiation. Maybe even cardiac arrest. It depends which goes first. The victim hangs by his body, literally at the pressure points of the wrists and the feet. And as the body hangs, it can't breathe properly. And so what happens is you've got carbon dioxide building up in the muscle tissue, which leads to these twisting, wrenching, horrible cramps. And so that forces the victim to push up with their feet and pull up with their hands, tearing at the wounds at the wrists and feet, just to be able to inhale and exhale a breath. And then they slope back down because they can't hold themselves there. Then as the torture progresses, the pericardium, your, your, your torso, begins to build up with fluid, which crushes the heart. 
making it impossible to pump effectively. And so you get these intermittent cycles of writhing muscle cramps followed by acute tearing or searing pain at the wrists and feet and crushing chest pain, suffocation continues until the victim is completely overcome and dies. And in the initial months of the Roman persecution, thousands, mark that, thousands of Christians were crucified in public. Some believers were sewn up in animal skins, wild animal skins, and thrown into an arena with ravenous dogs to be mauled to death. Others were fed to lions in gruesome displays of carnage, and still others, men and women, were nailed to wooden posts covered with pitch and oil, burned and used as lamps for the emperor's garden parties. Two and a half centuries of that. And then, of course, in the fourth century, Constantine converted to Christianity, supposedly, and that was the start of the state church, the Roman church. And as the Roman church grew in power, it became more and more corrupt and gave us things like the Dark Ages and Inquisition and the martyrdom of many, many righteous people like Jan Hus, Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley, Thomas Cranmer, William Timday, all of whom were burned at the stake. And guys, the persecution of Christians still goes on today. Still, Christians are the point of unrelenting persecution at the hands of people who don't love Jesus. People in the Sudan, in China, in Muslim cultures, many Muslim cultures, not all. But Christians suffer at the hands of evil, of evil men, and that's whom Peter had in mind. But you have to understand that with all that said, we have to recognize that believers suffer back then and today in many ways. Not just because they confess Jesus as Lord, but because they and we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that's broken, that's corrupted by sin. We live in a system that is devolving. It is going from complex to simple. We are living in a world that is decaying, passing away, and groaning and awaiting, as Paul says, the freedom of the glory of the children of God, Romans 8.21. In other words, Christians suffer under the corruption of a fallen, sin-sick world, right? That's me and you. And that's why Peter says in verse 6 that you have been distressed by what? Various kinds of trials, various trials. Peter recognized that, you know what? Christians get sick. Christians get cancer. Christians develop all manner of disease. Their kids, our kids, we all get flus and have to be sequestered. I was reading about this one church. It was a word of faith church. That These are folks that believe you can claim your healing and God is bound by your words to do what you say. It's true. People believe like that. But uh, they had to put a special note in the bulletin because they were bringing their kids sick to church and claiming their healing before they turned them in. And they were spreading their good news to all their little buddies. <laughs> and they had to say, stop bringing, claiming your healing and bringing your kids when they're sick, okay? Because it doesn't work, it doesn't work like that. We're all sub subject to disease. People who are Christians, I've seen traumatized and end up handicapped. And listen, believers 
wrestle with mental illness. I don't know where you are with that. But some of the godliest people, the most spiritually vigilant people, the most spiritually committed people I have known who have never abused drugs or alcohol, who have lived a circumspect life before the Lord, nevertheless, these people contend with deep depression and soul-rattling anxiety. It's real. They have to deal with unseen maladies that have a root in the chemical imbalance in their brain. Godly people suffer. And if you don't believe me, read the biographies of William Cooper, C.H. Spurgeon, David Brainerd, Adoniram Judson, Hudson Taylor, William Carey. We would label these people manic today. Christians suffer. Exemplary Christian parents lose their children. Children lose their parents. Hardworking believers lose their jobs, lose their homes. We live in a broken world. And so whether we suffer at the hands of people at enmity with God or we experience affliction as part of the common way of man, we will suffer. We are not immune. It is simply the way of it. Playwright Tennessee Williams wrote, quote, don't, he said, don't look forward to the day you stop suffering because when it comes, you know you're, you'll be dead. <laughs> and, as, you know, for us, death is, is an escape. It's a promotion. It's a, it's a wonderful thing when we go to be in the presence of the Lord. But you get what he's saying. As long as you're alive, you're going to suffer. Nobody in this room is immune. In fact, if we took the time to take a poll here, we would find a great spectrum of suffering that you are enduring right now. Peter wants to encourage you. Peter himself would eventually fall to Nero's persecution, and he, like thousands of his fellow Christians, was crucified. In fact, he begged his torturers, his tormentors, to crucify him upside down because he felt unworthy to die in the same manner his Lord had died. And they obliged. And he died a slow, horrible death. In fact, sources tell us, good sources, reliable sources, that Peter's wife traveled with Peter as he went about the, the Roman Empire preaching to all the churches. He had his traveling companion, his wife. And these sources tell us just the heart-wrenching information that Peter was forced by the Romans to watch his wife be crucified. You know, Paul talks about evil men being inventors of evil. This is a case. And he watched his wife die, and as she hung dying, he called out to her, remember the Lord, remember the Lord. Christians suffer. And Peter was experiencing firsthand some of this very sharp and poignant, acute suffering. And so he wants to encourage his readers with the fact that we all live and even suffer within the context of God's sovereign grace. He wanted people to know, Christians to know, that God is fully in control of everything, including their deepest suffering. And how does he do that? Well, he does this, and we're going to just briefly look at verses 1 and 2, or the first part of verse 2. But the first thing Peter does here is he, he points out to these dear brethren that there's a certain duality to their existence here on earth. There's this fact that they are aliens, right? What does it say in verse 1? It says, 
Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. He says, you guys are a bunch of scattered aliens. You're pilgrims, you're sojourners, you're exiles, you're foreigners, temporary residents of a foreign place. And listen, we've always looked, all cultures look with suspicion at foreigners, right? It's hard being a foreigner. I be one. My family has been kicked out of two countries. My dad, his sisters, and his mom and dad escaped Poland with a shirt on their back after having their house burned down in a pogrom. And they escaped Argentina because they needed a lot of skilled workers. And my, my grandfather was very skilled with his hands. And so they accepted him because they needed his work. But you know what? They never allowed him to become a citizen because he was of the wrong religion. My dad grew up in Argentina and he became a believer in Jesus and was part of the Southern Baptist down there. I guess that's really Southern because it's <laughs> below the equator. The ultra Southern Baptist. <laughs> the really deep down South people. And uh, especially during, during the Perón era in the early 50s, before I was born, um, he was, and my family were, were constantly harassed. In fact, uh, we always thought dad was going to end up in jail, but he had some, some friends in the military who kept him out of trouble, at least mainly. And my mom tells me, my bro eldest brother tells me that there was always a government car parked outside our home as an intimidation factor. We applied for immigration to the United States, and nine years after applying, we came in. My dad always said, we're going in the front door, we're not going. And we came in here, and you know, it was wonderful, but it was rough being a foreigner. We didn't speak the language. You know, I knew how to say milk, horse, yes, no, hello, good evening. And you can't get around town with that. Not much, unless you're looking for horse milk at nighttime. <laughs> but it was rough. I mean, I got, in school, I was whooped so many times because I was the wrong race. I can't remember going to school without being terrified. It's tough being a foreigner. People look at you crossways and question your motives and what are you hiding under that cloak and, you know, are you on the dole or whatever. It's tough being a foreigner. Peter says to his readers, you guys are foreigners here. You're exiles. You're temporary residents. You're immigrants on this earth. And that was one part of their human existence. There, there's a certain ignobility to being a Christian and living on this earth still. We're aliens, scattered aliens. That's one part of their reality. On the flip side of the co coin, he calls them chosen. Chosen of God. Literally called out ones, hand-picked. And in chapter 2, verse 9, listen to what he says. He says, you I know you're a bunch of scattered aliens, but you are a what? A holy nation, a royal priesthood, 
a people for God's own possession. That means acquired for preservation. You've been chosen, handpicked by God, and God says, these are mine. You cannot touch them. You're protected for preservation. You've been picked for preservation. And we are extremely precious to God. How precious? Let me just show you something. This blew me away when I, when I put two and two together. And I had a, a great teacher named Kenneth Weiss who helped me see this. I never met the man, but I've read his books. <laughs> so he teaches me vicariously through his books. But look at verse, starting with verse 6. How precious are we to God? He says, for this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Who is that stone? It's not a thing, it's a person. Who is it? It's Jesus Christ. He says, there is this precious cornerstone. The value is incalculable. And that is Jesus Christ. Now, now watch what he says in verse 7. This precious value. What precious value? The precious value of Jesus Christ to God. This precious value then is for you who believe. You know what that's saying? It's saying that you and I are as precious to God as Jesus Christ, his son, is precious to God. Are you kidding me? We are that valuable to God. We are his unique possession to be preserved because we are as precious to him as the son is precious. Listen, Jesus is the closest to the the heart of God, to his affections, and we dwell there. So that's the other side of, of their existence. On the one hand, they're a bunch of scattered aliens, and yet they are the chosen handpicked, precious to the Lord. And both of those realities, their alienness and their chosenness, come about, what's the first phrase in verse 2? According to the foreknowledge of God. Now we need to understand, first of all, something about the word foreknowledge. Foreknowledge doesn't simply mean that God knows something beforehand. If we had foreknowledge of stocks, we could invest this way or that. For us, it just means we know information. For God, to have a knowledge of someone, to know someone, is to have an intimate relationship with them. The word foreknowledge is simply the word knowledge with a prepositional prefix that it means before. And the word knowledge in the Bible is used to speak of intimacy and intimate relations. That's why... In the King James, it says that Cain knew his wife and she bore him a son. It doesn't mean that Cain knew who she was and had information about her and that she was a nice lady. It means that they had an intimate relationship. A child was conceived and then born. That's why the New American Standard translates that. And Cain had relations with his wife. The, the word is actually to know, gnosko, in the Greek translation. So for God to know you beforehand means that he chose to have a fatherly relationship with you before time began. It was there in his counsel that he put your life together, directed your life so that what makes your life uniquely yours would be you. Even all the heartaches, 
Now let me show you what I mean. I, I believe that according to the foreknowledge of God modifies all of verse 1. And I'm going to throw something technical at you, but I want you to at least grapple with it so that you can understand the text better, okay? My translation, the New American Standard, and the NIV, the AV, and the King James have the phrase, according to the foreknowledge of God, at the beginning of verse 2. Okay, if you've got the RSV, it doesn't do that. If your translation has, according to the foreknowledge of God, at the beginning of verse 2, and it modifies the word chosen, that's not the best translation. Why? Several reasons. One, it gives the word chosen. If it modifies only chosen, it gives it a verbal sense. And the word chosen is not a verb, it's an adjective. What's more, the word order is pretty radical. The word chosen doesn't appear with according to the foreknowledge of God in the text. It appears as the first adjective in verse 1, and it appears in conjunction with scattered aliens. So that verse 1 reads literally to the scattered aliens of the dispersion. The RSV gets it right. It says to those who are elect exiles, chosen aliens, different words, same meaning. And the other thing that's notable here is that verse 1 does not contain a verb. And so the most natural meaning is to allow the phrase according to the foreknowledge of God to modify all of verse 1, not just simply chosen. So what does this mean? It means this. This is the point. It means that our entire earthly existence is according to the foreknowledge of God. Our privileged standing before God, does that include that? Yes. It includes our, the blessings of his grace, our adoptions as sons and daughters, Absolutely. The blessings of being his chosen ones, the precious value that is accrued to us from Jesus. All of that is according to the foreknowledge of God. And also, guys, listen, our conditions as aliens, our persecution, our hardship, our difficulties, the tragedies of life, even the environment in which we grew up. Everything that makes our lives ours is according to the foreknowledge of God and in accordance with his fatherly love and concern for us in a love relationship before time began. I'm not telling you I understand that. I'm just telling you that that's there and that's my job. God has orchestrated our lives so that it is what our lives are. And they have been orchestrated by a loving Heavenly Father. You know, we sometimes I think we look at trials much the same way we uh, look at avoiding you know, accidents on the freeway. It's like, oh, man, I'm glad I looked up back then because I would have rear-ended that guy. Or, man, I almost got you know, run off the road by that truck. or I, Oh, he nicked my fender. That could have been worse. Sure glad I missed that one. We have the attitude that Winston Churchill had when he said that the most exhilarating feeling in life is to be shot at and missed. I, I hope I never find out. But sometimes that's the attitude we take towards trials. It's like, whoa, it's up to us to avoid him. And Guys, we live, we exist, we suffer within the context of God's sovereign grace. I don't understand it. 
but I love it. Amen. Now, I, I'm not going to pretend to compete with the great Eric Cobb. Eric, as we know, is our resident cartoonist and pastor. I wanted to illustrate this for you. This is the biggest whiteboard in the history of mankind. And you don't realize it until you stand by it. That's it. That's, uh, that's my illustration. I hope it, it blesses you. It's scapulis. It's a snake, you know, of medicine or whatever. Guys, this is taught everywhere in the Bible, everywhere in the New Testament especially. Have you ever heard the terms in Christ or in God? But I was looking at First and Second Thessalonians this week, and the introduction to both epistles is virtually identical with the exception of one, one word. Paul writes, Silvanus and Timothy, along with Paul, write to the church, it says, of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what Paul does there, he uses a grammatical tool called the locative of sphere. And you don't need to remember that. What does it mean to live in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? You could illustrate it this way. Draw a circle. It's more like an egg. Okay, this is the sphere of our location, which would represent God the Father, God the Son. We are in him. Then you put a dot right in the center of it, and that would be us. And just as that circle circumscribes that dot, so God circumscribes each of his people. Just as the circle has the dot all to itself, so God has us all to himself. In fact, remember the term, uh, his own possession? It's also found in Titus 2.14. And that's a very interesting term there. The term for God's own possession is a compound word in the Greek. It's periousios. And the word peri simply means around, as in a circle. Usios is the verb to be, and you could illustrate that by a dot. This is what it means to belong to God. Just, again, as the circle has a dot all to himself, to itself, so God has all, us all to himself. We are in God, in Christ. You know, this is also an example of Colossians 3, 3, and 4. If you've got your Bible, turn there for a second. It says, Colossians 3, 3, For you have died. That's the point. The reference there is the, the moment we came to faith in Jesus, when we said, I want to follow him. I want him to forgive me of my sins. We died. To what? To ourselves, to sin, Right? To the penalty of sin, to the power of sin. We still struggle with sin, but it is no longer our master. It can't claim us at death. Paul says, for you have died. You, you died at a point in time to sin and its penalty when you came to Jesus Christ. And then he says, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's this idea. And the word hidden is in the perfect tense the perfect tense signifies in Greek, signifies something that is a completed action that has ongoing power or ongoing results. You've heard Eric mention it. It's what are the last words that Jesus said on the cross? It is finished, right? One word in the Greek, tetelestai, 
What does that mean? It means that Christ died for sins once for all. His sacrifice doesn't need to be repeated now. And it's the blood of Christ, the cross of Christ, is just as powerful to save today as it was in the day of Pentecost. Because it has ongoing power. We are, when we trusted Christ and we died to the penalty of sin, our life was hidden in Christ, remains hidden, and will continue to be so until when? Verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. One day, God is going to open up the show and reveal his son Jesus, and we will be revealed with him in glory. Until that day, we will stay hidden and remain hidden, protected by God Almighty. Periousios. Circle is in around. The verb to be right in the middle. Now, think of what this means in terms of suffering and trials. We've been talking about that. Let's, let's put a, uh, a dot on the outside of the circle and uh, label that trial. Now, if we were to draw an arrow from the trial here outside of our protection of God to us in our place of possession, what has to happen with that arrow? It has to penetrate the circle, right? That's exactly what is our experience in God, in Christ. Before any trial can reach you and I in the the hollow of God's hand, as it were, it is to first be permitted by God. And what do you know about God? Is he good? Is he kind? Is he gracious? Do you think he's going to allow us to be touched by a trial that is simply too big for us to even handle? Does he have a perfect knowledge of who you are, what your weaknesses are, what your strengths are? So if he allows us to be touched by a trial... He's going to modify it to suit our maturity level, right? That's the way it works. You know, a lot of times there are trials that uh, the enemy sends our way and goes, bink, it just bounces off. In fact, I'm convinced that's more true most of the time rather than the exception. You can see this so much in the life of Job, can't you? Satan goes up to report to heaven about his dealings with mankind to God. And uh, God says, what have you been doing? Oh, I've been roaming around the earth, you know, hanging. And uh, God says, well, have you considered my servant Job? God suggests to Satan, hey, have you tried, you know, assailing my servant Job? And Satan's response in chapter one, he goes, well, of course, I can't get near the guy. Because you, it says, have put a hedge of protection all around him. I can't even touch him. And then God says, okay, you may touch him. All that he has, but only do not touch him. So what happens? Satan comes back down to earth. He takes everything of worldly possession, including the children of this dear man. But he doesn't touch Job. Chapter 2, same scene is repeated. And God says, have you considered my servant Job to Satan and And he says, I can't touch him. He only loves you because you take care of him, because you fill his plate with many good things. He's incredibly rich. 
And this time God says, okay, you can afflict him with disease, but you can't take his life. In other words, in each case, God modified the temptation so that Job would not be overwhelmed. That's the same thing that holds true for us, guys. You said, is that taught anywhere in, in Scripture explicitly? It really is. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. A very familiar verse. Go ahead and turn there, and we'll end with this. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. This incorporates all of these principles. He says, Paul writes, No temptation, by the way, the word temptation there can be translated trial, or it can be translated temptation. It's translated differently according to context. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it's a context of temptation, but for the sake of saving ink, we'll just call it a trial. No temptation or trial has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Do you get that? That means that you and I do not experience anything that hasn't been experienced a million times by other human beings. I think one of the uh, lies that Satan punishes us with and keeps us weak with is that our temptation, what we are feeling, our struggles are unique to us and we're too embarrassed to talk about them. God says, no temptation, not one has overtaken you, but such as is common to all mankind. Right? And I think the implication there is get help. Don't suffer alone. So no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. Aren't you glad for that? Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. That's this. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you may be able to endure it or to bear up under it. And sometimes a way of escape is to bear up under. Strength to do that. Guys, God does not have crash dummies for children. You know crash dummies? We put them in cars, crash them, and then we evaluate the, the impact and the damage. God doesn't say... I think Marcelo can handle this. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe not. Well, let's go ahead and run the test. All right, everybody ready? Let's go. Pull back the rubber band, let it go. Oh, he couldn't handle it. That's too bad. He had promise. Well, let's go ahead and clean up the mess and go to the next victim. That doesn't happen. We are each his unique and precious possession, guys. I'm not saying we understand this all the time, but our reality is, is that we are the church covenant grace in Menifee in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can put your own name in there as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for just the reality that we live, we exist, we suffer in the sphere of your sovereign grace, Lord. Uh, Lord, we belong to you. We are precious to you. We are called out ones. We are singularly valuable to you. You love us as dear children. And Lord, you have allowed certain circumstances to come into our life, both that we see as good and bad, but Lord, all of it comes by the design of a heavenly father who will bring all things 
to work for good, for our good and your glory. And we thank you for that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the podcast of Walking in the Promises. If you would like to learn more about our ministry or invite Marcelo to speak, visit us online at witp.org.